Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Start building your website today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code LEFT at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, you should. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Upworthy, Propaganda, Decode DC, Democracy Now!, On the Media, Backtalk, and Counterspin. I'm a guy, and I know why these guys do this. The bottom line is this, lady. I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm Calm down a bit here, Kelly. If it's a legitimate race... I'll let you finish, but Beyonce had one of the best videos of all... You've probably seen some of these cringeworthy moments before. They span from politics to pop culture, but they have one thing in common. A wildly overconfident man interrupting, shushing, and holding forth on a topic that he might not be the most qualified spokesman for. This phenomenon has become known as mansplaining. It's the word that's launched a thousand think pieces, including a few that are clearly over it. But we wondered, what does the science have to say about it? Back in 1984, a study observed that female doctors were more than twice as likely to be interrupted by patients than their male counterparts. A 2004 study found that men at Harvard Law were more than 50% more likely to comment in class and 144% more likely to speak up more than twice. And it happens in the workplace. A 2012 study found that when tasked with a group decision by majority vote, women spoke less than 75% as much as men. The media is not much better. A 2012 study found that men write 80% of traditional opinion pieces and 67% of them online. And the data shows that while there are fewer men than women on Twitter, men are retweeted more than twice as often. What the science shows is that mansplaining isn't an overused word flaming the gender wars. It's a cultural reference point that illustrates how women are more likely to be interrupted, less likely to speak, and are continuously robbed of the benefit of the doubt. It explains a nagging, sinking uncertainty that millions of smart, capable women feel all too frequently. And we can definitely use some more words for that. Disney is one of the most influential media companies in the world. It's hard to believe that Disney almost went bankrupt right after it got started. In 1940, the studio had sunk $2.3 million into making epic musical work Fantasia. The movie was a financial loss, and Disney had exceeded its loan limits. So the studio turned to a simple story of a flying elephant to make some money. Dumbo was born. In the film, Dumbo is befriended by a group of crows. Maybe you saw Dumbo as a kid and didn't think too much about it. But listen again to that crow's song. <laughs> Did you ever see an elephant fly? <laughs> well, I see the horse fly. Ah, I see the dragon fly. <laughs> I see the house fly. <laughs> yeah, I seen all that too. I see the peanuts dance. I heard a rubber band. I seen a needle that winked its eye. But I be done seen about everything when I see an elephant fly. What you say, boy? These crows are clearly standing in for black people. Their way of speaking, their clothes, 
Even their name are racial stereotypes. The Maine bird's name is Jim Crow, in reference to America's racial segregation laws. Some of the crows are voiced by black actors, but Jim Crow himself was portrayed by Cliff Edwards, a white actor and ukulele player, better known for voicing Jiminy Cricket. When you wish upon a star Makes no difference who you are. Many people have examined the racial politics of Disney animals over the years. The documentary film Mickey Mouse Monopoly explores this issue, along with other critical perspectives on Disney. Here's a clip from the documentary, which starts with a scene from Tarzan and includes quotes from two media scholars and two small children. Kids in Africa see it. They see a white man in Africa who's superior, swinging from trees, and they, they see no Africans. And they see gorillas being the ones they relate to. Is it promoting white supremacy? i never seen any black people in Disney's movie. I can't think of any um, Disney movies that have black people that are good. Disney has very, very few Asian or Asian-American characters in their children's films. And that's probably why the Siamese cats really stand out for me. The question is, what type of stories get invented, circulated, perpetuated in the public imagination, and why? Scholar, writer, and activist, Walida Imarisha, is someone who's been thinking hard about what stories Disney tells and why. She teaches a class on race and Disney films at Portland State University. Her class does a deep read on Disney, looking at the role that animated animals play in defining perceptions of race, class, and gender. You heard Walida if you listened to our episode on feminism and sci-fi, where she spoke up for the rights of droids in Star Wars. I'm happy to welcome Walida back to our show. It's always such a thrill to have her on. So one of the requirements of your class on race and Disney films is for students to write a personal essay about their history with Disney films. So I was hoping you could tell us about your history with Disney. Like, did you watch a lot of Disney as a kid? Um, and when did you start thinking critically about the way Disney uses animals uh, with an eye on race specifically? Sure. So, I mean, I think it's really important for us to acknowledge, you know, the kind of uh, ways that Disney has influenced all of us. And I think that, you know, um, I feel like people either, you know, love Disney or love to hate Disney um, and uh, oftentimes uh, aren't kind of thinking about it in a, in a holistic way. And so I think uh, for students coming into the class, it's really hard to critique Disney, right? Because Disney has been part of the vast majority of our lives since before we could remember a time without Disney, and I think it's really important to recognize that that's actually part of Disney's marketing plan. And their goal is to get folks, you know, when they're babies, which is why they market products to babies, uh, to get folks, you know, before they, they know that there's such a thing as a world without Disney. Um, and so, and to kind of inculcate themselves in this magical realm and this idea of nostalgia so that they actually um, don't fall within the realm of critique. Pretty much every term, I'm accused of ruining people's childhoods. Um, you know, and so my my goal is to try and find a way to, you know, to acknowledge that emotional connection while still saying 
And that, that actually means we have to critique it even more, not less. That's funny. You point out that, like, I, I personally can't remember a time before I knew about Disney. It's just always a part of your culture and always a part of your life. It's Disney is such a cultural touchstone for our pop culture. It's where it all begins. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, I mean, I think that that can't be overstated. And, you know, again, that that is a concerted effort by the Disney Corporation to do that, right? Um, and, uh, and to kind of, you know, uh, infuse itself into every part of, of American culture. The other thing about Disney is that Disney works so hard so people won't think about it as a corporation. And it's been incredibly successful at that, right? And many of my students uh, have an incredible hard time thinking of Disney as a corporation. And, I, you know, I'll say, okay, what is the definition of a corporation? And we'll go through it. What is the point of a corporation to make money for its shareholders? Students are very clear about that. I'm like, what is the point of the Disney Corporation? To make people happy, right? <laughs> because Disney has done a phenomenal job of marketing itself in, in a global context. Right, so let's let's talk about a film specifically. One of the first films you discuss in your class is uh, the 1967 animated film, The Jungle Book. Yes. And this, of course, is a film that's all about animals. It has, you know, Baloo, there's the bear, there's Bagheera, the panther, there's Shere Khan, who's a tiger, who's a villain. Can you talk about how you use The Jungle Book to discuss race with your students? Absolutely. I mean, I think that The Jungle Book is... And is an incredibly important film because it shows the Disney ideology in many ways the clearest, right? So, you know, Walt Disney had a very clear framework about how the world should be, right? And he was very clear and upfront about that. Walt Disney had an incredibly conservative framework. You know, he felt that, you know, uh, women should be in the home. He felt that, you know, there shouldn't be queer and trans folks in the world. He felt that, you know, folks of color should keep to their menial, you know, places, Right. He was very clear on this sort of immense conservative worldview. And that worldview is infused in all of these Disney films. And I think you can see it in, in some ways most clearly in The Jungle Book. Right. The Jungle Book is actually the last film that Walt Disney worked on personally before he passed away in 1966. And, you know, there are great scholars who, who really look at it, one of them being um, Greg Met, uh, Metcalf, who has an article really saying that in many ways the Jungle Book is a complete repudiation by Disney of all of these, um, you know, changing times, right? The 1960s, what's happening in the 1960s in this country? Well, everything, right? We have, you know, the uh, women's rights movement, women liberation movement. We have the, you know, uh, beginnings of, you know, gay liberation movements. We obviously have third world, black, um, Latino uh, Asian indigenous liberation movements happening here and globally, right? And that the Jungle Book is actually a complete repudiation of all of that. And if you go through what comes out so clearly when you watch the Jungle Book is there is a natural order of things. Things have a natural order. Everyone has their place in a hierarchy. And it is once you step out of that place that everything falls apart. And things cannot come back together and society can't function unless everyone is in their proper place. Um, and we see that with, you know, especially with the differences between the original book by Kipling and the changes that Disney makes to it, right, to, to kind of emphasize this. 
so, you know, in, in the book, right, um, there's, you know, there's a reason that, that, uh, Mowgli can't go to the village for a while. But at the end of the film, Shere Khan is gone, right? Mowgli tied that stick to his, burning stick to his tail. He's gone. Seemingly, we've won. There's no more danger. Why can't Mowgli stay in the jungle, right? So that's not the natural order of things. And they, they reinforce this again and again and again, right? So let's talk about another film you talk about in your class, which is The Lion King. And this film is one of the more recent ones that maybe you were talking about watching as an adult. It came out in 1994. Uh, does the message remain the same over those 30 years that uh, people should stay in their place, defend the status quo, put like with like? Or did you do you see a radical difference between the way The Lion King deals with these issues versus The Jungle Book? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think that, you know, the, the idea with Disney, um, and there's actually an article called this, is that the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? That one of the things that makes Disney incredibly a brilliant corporation is that it takes the critiques that are being given to it and it seemingly incorporates those critiques while keeping the same underlying ideology. So, you know, the, the Little Mermaid actually was a response to a feminist critique of saying these old Disney princess films, right, with Cinderella and Snow White and Dear God Sleeping Beauty who spends, you know, the vast majority of the film either singing, cleaning, or sleeping, right? Um, you know, these are, these are not appropriate images for young girls to have anymore. So then they gave you the Little Mermaid, right, who's this strong, empowered, independent, adventurous young woman, until she sees a man, and then she's willing to give up everything for him, right? So the more things change, the more they stay the same. And we absolutely see this in The Lion King, right? Because, um, so again, we have the lions being coded as, you know, the the top of the hierarchy, the ruling monarchy, right? And so being coded as white. And we have the hyenas who are voiced by, you know, by uh, by two people of color, um, and, and really the main two people of color voices that we hear in that, um, we, you know, we see that the hyenas being coded as people of color and they are ghettoized, right? They're given the bad lands. They're given the lands where the light doesn't touch, where nothing grows, right? And they are starving to death. And, you know, this, this very clear analogy to, you know, folks who are in, you know, inner city, overexploited, under-resourced communities, uh, and, and when, when the, when the hyenas leave their segregated, you know, community, right, and try and take over with the support, you know, supporting Scar's leadership, that's when everything is destroyed, right? The land itself rebels against this unnatural order of things. The land, you know, the water dries up, there's no food to eat, like the land itself becomes desolate, the sun goes away, it's just dark and there's nothing to eat and everything's terrible because we did not keep to the natural order of things. And it is only when that that hierarchy and that segregation is reinstituted that we that we see the sun immediately comes out, the water begins to flow, the animals are happy and everything is back to the way it should be. And I think the one other thing about The Lion King that's so important is that this film as you said, came out in 1994. This is the era of the end of legal apartheid in South Africa, right? That, you know, Nelson Mandela came home, that we're seeing the dismantling of the, the legal apartheid system that people had fought against so hard, right, which was 
you know, one of the, you know, most brutal forms of segregation the world has ever seen and, let's be clear, modeled on American segregation. And so it is at this time when this country that the whole world has been looking at is dismantling legal segregation that Disney puts out a film whose whole message is if you don't segregate people to their proper place, then then everything will be destroyed. I want to go back in time to President Obama's first term in the White House. This was a rocky time for women. They had achieved that so-called 20%, that critical mass in Obama's top staff. But in Jay Newton Small's book, she describes how they were, and I'm not making this up, physically shut out by the men surrounding the president of important meetings. So it's fascinating. This was really the first White House that you could argue the women had critical mass. They had 39% of the senior staff was um was women in the, in the West Wing. And so, and that was great, but it, 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 they also, but they didn't quite know how to harness that, those numbers to begin with. Because when they're coming into the White House, you know, it's a crazy job. You work a ton. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, this was just taking time off, really. Yeah. Right. And like, and they didn't really know each other very well coming into it. A lot of them weren't sort of natural friends, hadn't really known each other. Some were from Chicago, some mm-hmm. were from DC. And so they, they didn't really gel together very well in the beginning. And they, really did get shut out by a lot of the men. I mean, Christy Romer, very famously, really wanted to do a much larger stimulus. And Larry Summers just kind of shut her down. She um, was the head of the National Economic Council. Yeah, exactly, right, exactly. Right. And, um, and, you know, and, and there were other examples of, you know, women quite literally being shut out of, you know, meetings in the Oval Office uh, when things were happening that they didn't, you know, and they would find out about it later and say, you know, what the heck, guys? This is not cool. And they'd be like, oh, sorry, uh, you know, you just weren't there. And so they took their grievances to the president in the end of 2009 and he had a dinner for them in uh, the residence of the, of the White House and and he listened to all of their complaints but was kind of unsympathetic and was like, you know what, you guys just got to step up your game. And almost offhandedly, he suggested that they um, get together and start helping each other. So they started these like monthly dinners, um, which were kind of like awkward at first, but they actually rapidly found that they could help each other. Right. So, for example, Lisa Brown, who's the president's uh, secretary, um, which is a very powerful position, yes. um, she'd see meetings starting to happen where the men would, you know, like turn a conversation that was unrelated to something else, and she would immediately alert. She'd like call or text or email the women who should be involved in that meeting and say, hey, they're talking about this, come on down. And when the conversation turned and it wasn't possible to get the woman there in time, the women would take notes for them and they would read them in and fill them in on what happened. During meetings, and this has happened to every woman in America, I can tell you, in meetings where you say something with a group of men mm-hmm. um, and then everyone's like, uh-huh, and then like 10 minutes later, the man's a man says exactly the same thing and everyone's like, oh my God, genius! <laughs> and you're like, are you serious? I just said that. And what they started to do was to point it out. And so they'd be like, hey, you know, Mona made that same point 10 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. It's a really smart point. Mona, you know, she had credit for it. You know, or they would... Um, 
comment out when they weren't sort of, you know, when they were taking other people's ideas and be like, you know, I read that report that Christie wrote, and I think that was Christie's idea to begin with, you know? <laughs> there was a scene in July of 2011 where it was the president, the chief of staff, Bill Daly, um, senior advisor, David Pluff, and they were having, you know, this meeting. Yeah. What happened? So the women, having gone through this and become closer and closer and closer, and they started to really use their critical mass, still were sometimes frustrated by being shut out of the room. And this meeting was going on. It was a Sunday. It was during the Grand Bargain Talks. Right. And there were three women who were very involved in those talks. Uh, Alyssa Mastromonaco was Deputy Chief of Staff who ran the budget. Yep. Um, Nancy Ann DeParle was Deputy Chief of Staff for Policy and ran all policy. Yep. And Stephanie Cutter, who was the senior communications person who had to sell the deal if, if and when there should be a deal. And they heard about this meeting in the Oval, and they got really angry, and they're like, they keep cutting us out. Even if it's not on purpose, but they did it anyway. I mean, they, they realized it wasn't necessarily on purpose sometimes, um, but they were being cut out. That was the effect of, of the effect of it. And so they gathered in front of the Oval Office and they were like, you know what? We're just going to walk in. Wait a minute. So they just walked in? So they just barged into the Oval Office (laughs) uninvited and sat down and started participating in the meeting. And the president was like, hi guys. And no one else said anything, but they all got the point. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's a powerful moment. And they were never again shut out because the men got the message. If you're going to continue to shut us out, we're just going to take our seat at the table uninvited. If you need a website, blog, or online store, there is just no beating the ease and simplicity of Squarespace. Their drag-and-drop tools and professionally designed responsive templates will help you get up and running with a professional-looking website from day one. So don't get bogged down with a more complicated, less secure system that may even require you to hire a developer. Squarespace is easy enough for anyone to use, but powerful enough to handle just about anything you want to throw at it. They even partner with dozens of third-party service providers to really flesh out their offerings. All this starts at an astonishingly reasonable monthly rate and includes incredible 24-7 customer support. You can start a free trial with no credit card required, and then if you decide to sign up for a year, they'll throw in a free domain with your new site. Plus, if you make sure to use the offer code LEFT at checkout, you'll get 10% off your entire first year and support this show at the same time. Squarespace, you should. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. We're broadcasting from the Sundance Film Festival here in Park City, Utah. A growing number of actors and filmmakers are pushing for a boycott of the Oscars after no actors of color were nominated for a second year a row. No uh, uh, actors of color were nominated for an Oscar. While movies about African Americans like Straight Outta Compton and Creed did receive nominations, they went to the white writers of Straight Outta Compton and the white actor Sylvester Stallone for Best Supporting Actor in Creed. The African American directors and non-white actors were excluded. Director Spike Lee, actress Jada Pinkett Smith, actor Will Smith, and others have said they plan to skip the February 28th award ceremony. Spike Lee appeared last week on Good Morning America. I have never used the word boycott. 
All I said was my wife, my beautiful wife, time, we're not coming. That's it. Then I gave the reason. So I've never used the word boycott. I never have said to anybody, it's like, do you. We're not coming. Not going. This whole academy thing is a misdirection play. Okay, how? We're chasing the guy down the field. He doesn't have the ball. The other guy is high-stepping the end zone. So this goes, it goes further than the academy wars. It has to go back to the gatekeepers. Studios. Yes. The people who have the green-white vote. Have you seen Hamilton yet? I have seen Hamilton. You know the song? You got to be in the room? Yeah. We're not in the room. We are not in the room. The executive, when they have these green, uh, green light meetings quarterly, where they look at the scripts, they look who's in it, and decide what we're making, what we're not making. How about your own experience? You, get, you, 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 make, you make your movies. Do you feel like you've been snubbed, like you haven't had a fair hearing? One best, what, won, one, what won best film 1989? I don't know, actually. Driving Miss and Daisy. And which film did you have in 1989? Do the Right Thing. That film's being taught in colleges, schools, all over. No one's watching this Driving Miss Daisy now. So it also shows you that the work is what's important, because that's the stuff that's going to stand for years. Not an award, not whether it be a Grammy, a Tony, or whatnot. So even if you don't get the Oscar, there is some success, but there's still a huge problem in the whole studio system. From top to bottom. That's Spike Lee being interviewed by George Stephanopoulos of ABC. The largely white male Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Scientists responded by pledging to overhaul its voting requirements and to double membership of women and people of color by 2020. The board of the Academy is currently 96% white and 71% white male. Here at Sundance, I spoke with award-winning documentary filmmaker Stanley Nelson, asked him about his thoughts on the Academy's response to the boycott. I think, you know, that helps to address the Academy's problem, but I'm not sure if it addresses the problem overall in Hollywood. That, again, you know, is a, is a, uh, a media that's very dominated by white people, by white men, and those are the stories that they tell, and those are the stories that they've been telling for over 100 years. And how does that affect our culture? Well, you know, I, I think it, it makes us kind of used to having a certain group be in the dominant role. You know, that's who we're used to seeing. But, and not only us, but that, that media travels all over the world, and that's what the world sees. So I think it's, it's very, you know, Hollywood's very influential. So I think, you know, Hollywood has to want to change. And I think that what's happening now that's good is that people are saying to Hollywood, you need to change. And so hopefully it will. What do you think of the boycott called for the Oscars? Well, I, mean, I think that individuals should do what they want. I mean, I, I know that I'd have a hard time with what's going on to go there and sit there, you know, in my fancy dress and clap. So I think that there's a lot of people who just feel uncomfortable, and I think they should. And I think also the thing that's important, too, is that white people join in. You know, if you care, then you need to also join in in, in this boycott and in making Hollywood change. What would make Hollywood change? What do you think would change society? I think the only thing that was going to make Hollywood change is, is the boycott and, and for somehow uh, this to affect the bottom line of Hollywood. The problem with Hollywood and the success of Hollywood are the same. Hollywood is making more and more money every year, so why should they change? But once uh, the bottom line is affected, then Hollywood will change. They say theirs. I don't think so. 
Filmmaker Stanley Nelson, director of Black Panther's Vanguard of the Revolution. It airs on PBS on February 16th. His other films include Freedom Riders and Freedom Summer. Still with us here in Park City, Utah is Don Porter, the director of Trapped, which just had its world premiere here at the Sundance Film Festival. And she has uh, directed other films, Gideon's Army, Spies of Mississippi. Your response here, Don, you know, um, when you saw the announcements of the Oscars, all 20 actors and actresses, not one a person of color. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it goes beyond actors and actresses. I mean, I think there's also an appalling lack of recognition of screenwriters, of directors. Um, I have to say that the day the Academy nominations came out, I had such a sinking feeling of despair. I really was hopeful last year with the Oscar So White hashtag, with the conversation, with everybody's pledges to do better. Um, not only did they not do better, they did worse. How could it possibly be that in a year when so much fine work is emerging from actors, directors, producers, writers of color, that not any, that no one is recognized for their artistic achievements. And I think that that's a real problem. There are feeders into the Oscars, like Sundance. Now, while there's the hashtag Oscars so white, at Sundance it's uh, Sundance not so white. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that's true? I feel it's absolutely true. I mean, you see, coming into in the documentary competition, which my film is competing, um, in which trapped, uh, which Gideon's Army competed three years ago, there forty percent uh, directors of the directors are women, um, and in uh, you also have, but and you have uh, directors of color. Um, but you see, uh, once you move through that pipeline, those people disappear. It's as if, you know, Sundance didn't happen. So a film festival, it is one of the premier film festivals in the country. Where is all that talent um, being recognized? Do you support a boycott of the Oscars? I absolutely support a boycott. Um, you know, this reminds me of uh, when baseball was segregated, you know, the Negro Leagues. Does anyone really think that all of the talent um, that was in the sport was being recognized? How can you possibly look at the films that are coming out and think that the best, you know, the Oscars are supposed to represent the best of what we have to offer? How can that possibly be if no, um, none of these fine films are recognized? And Spike Lee's comment that it's about the gatekeepers. Um, I think it absolutely is about the gatekeepers, but I don't think we should absolve the, the voting members of the Academy. Gatekeepers trying to keep me out, hating on me without a doubt. Politicians all your ruins, holding me back with all your dirty doings. Look in my eyes, tell me your lies. I want you to know you're not sly. You're not with me, just in my way. Said your gatekeepers keep getting in my way. Get out of my way. Get out of my way. Let me in. You got to let me in. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. The magazine called Spread, spelled with a dollar sign instead of an S, was a groundbreaking magazine for and by sex workers that was published from 2005 to 2011. When it won an Utney Independent Press Award for Best New Title, the judges wrote... 
sit down with an issue of this already controversial title, and you'll realize how effectively the mainstream media have denied sex workers a place at the table. Smart and culturally revealing, this quarterly magazine aims to educate, inform, and provoke discussion about the state of sex work. A new book has collected the greatest hits from Spread. It's called Spread. The best of the magazine that illuminated the sex industry and started a media revolution. Eliana Kaiser was Spread's executive editor, and Rachel Amy was a founding editor. She explains why they created Spread. We were all frustrated with the extreme versions of sex workers. It was either the high-class call girl making a thousand dollars an hour, or the drug addicted trafficking victim working on the streets. And we really wanted to create a space for sex workers to speak for themselves. So, give me a sense of what might be in a typical issue. We largely focused on women's magazines as sort of a template when we thought about sex workers' workplaces. The kinds of things that were passed around or hanging out, you know, at the strip club change room or the Dom's phone center or whatever were women's magazines. But are we talking about Seventeen or Vogue? No, yeah, or we're talking Cosmo about Cosmo. Paladin. We're talking about Cosmo and Us <laughs> Weekly. We wanted to make sure that there was a political bent to it, but we wanted to present the magazine in an accessible format. We knew that was an accessible format, so we had fashion stuff. We had a style. Section. We had a consumer report where people reviewed products that they used in everyday life. We had this one column where we asked people to write in about the strangest, funniest thing a client ever asked them to do, and. There were so many people that told us that that was the first thing they turned to every time they got the magazine. <laughs> Give me an example. Effing the Movement by a contributor named Eve Ryder, and that piece is about a New York City escort who's asked to dress up as an anarchist protester. This client had a fetish about spanking a Seattle protester. <laughs> <laughs> I believe there's a line in there, bad protester, you smash the Starbucks or you know, something like that. So, I mean, it's just, it just was a really, really fun column. I want to get back to the depiction of sex workers in mainstream media and how you wanted to address the stigma and the familiar narratives. There's a reference in the anthology to the savior narrative. What is the savior narrative? There is a certain kind of mostly male reporting that's going on that is fulfilling its own kind of fantasy, which is this fantasy of rescue. I mean, I think it's best embodied in the person of Nicholas Kristof at the New York Times. Whether or not he has the best interests of trafficking victims at heart, at the end of the day, he is using them as props. He is often ignoring economic realities in the places that he is walking into. I think it takes a certain amount of a personal savior complex to think that as a journalist, you should go and live tweet a brothel raid. You should know also about the A&E reality show called Eight Minutes, and this is an excellent example of media's obsession with rescue. A former police officer who is now a pastor, having tricked sex workers who are advertising in newspapers or on Craigslist into meeting him in the hotel room where they have cameras set up. He has, and this is the point of the show, eight minutes to convince them to leave their horrible, horrible lives all for the viewer's entertainment. Now, a watershed moment for the publication happened when you decided to take an editorial position that you wouldn't take an editorial position <laughs> on political or ethical issues. And 
This stemmed from your feeling that your writers weren't necessarily representative of sex workers in general, that they were too happy. I think that there was never a moment where, you know, the magazine was completely filled with happy hookers or anything like that. But there was a reaction going on to mostly, I think, not the media, but the feminist movement who was telling them, you are a victim. And I think quite understandably, as a result of being told you are a victim and there's nothing you can say that isn't, you know, a result of brainwashing, they wanted to very emphatically say, no, I, I make choices and life may not be perfect for me, but they are my choices. Did that mean that they were self-editing sometimes? Sure, absolutely. But we definitely made an effort to reach out to people who had as diverse experiences as possible and to make it clear to them that they didn't only have to write about things that were positive about their lives and that they weren't going to be judged for it. I remember we had a conversation at one point about whether we were going to call the magazine a feminist magazine because many of us who were involved in the magazine identified as feminists. There was one time when I interviewed Tracy Kwan. She's a novelist and a former call girl. She said being a feminist is often a sign that you were raised in the suburbs or had an unnatural um, <laughs> relationship to your mother. We got a letter from Lisa Jervis, who was one of the founding editors of Bitch magazine, which is a feminist mm -hmm. magazine. She was horrified that I hadn't challenged Tracy on the comment she'd made. And our response to that was, well... Tracy is a sex worker and spread as a magazine to provide a place for sex workers to speak for themselves regardless of their opinions on anything. A sex worker thinks this, so it goes in the magazine. Many people were surprised when you were at a national sex workers conference in 2006 that when asked to sign on to a statement about decriminalization of prostitution, you said no. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was probably the most awkward moment and the biggest test of our no positions position. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a person involved with spread, I think, at any point who thinks that prostitution should be criminalized. But we knew that there were probably some sex workers out there who might hold a different view. And we wanted to make sure that anyone who was a sex worker, regardless of their political views, felt comfortable thinking that spread was a place that they could have a voice. How has media's coverage of sex work changed with the times? Has it gotten any better since you folded in 2011? There are definitely more sex workers making their own media these days, creating media online and working as journalists. And also, the mainstream media tends to use the word sex worker much more than it did 10 years ago. In the spread anthology, you anatomize the coverage of the Elliot Spitzer scandal of 2008. What Carolyn Andrews is saying in this piece, which is called The Real Media Whores, is that, you know, whenever there is this kind of a scandal, there's a formula that gets rolled out. You find some prostitutes, you ask them about how prostitution works, what the going rate is these days. Those are the questions you ask the sex workers. But for the real issue-based stuff, you find experts, quote-unquote, sociologists, doctors. Yeah, absolutely. You don't go to the sex workers to ask them the big questions. One thing I thought was really interesting that was noted by Carolyn Andrews is that the focus is always on 
the sex worker. The essay quotes Stacy Swim's sex worker blog, Bound Not Gagged, who observed that no one called Elliot Spitzer's parents to find out how he grew up to be a John. No, but they certainly called Kristen's. Thank you both very much for being here. Rachel Amy is a founding editor of Spread Magazine. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. And Eliana Kaiser was its executive editor. Thanks, Eliana. Thanks, Brooke. It's the power of the words, of the words, of the words. The power of, of the words. Symbols stretch out from the pages and grips the mouth. The Oscars are coming up, yes, in a couple weeks, in the two weekends from now, and um, and man, some some like uh, awful shit has happened <laughs> since uh, since the nominees were first announced. So the thing is that um, a month ago, in the mid January, um, the Academy announced their nominations, and you know all of the uh, actor, all the acting categories for Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Supporting Actress for all white nominees. And uh, we forgot to mention this the last time we talked about it, but this isn't like the first time it's happened, obviously, right? But it's the second year in a row. This exact thing happened last year, uh, which is even more interesting when you think about um, when Patricia Arquette won, mm-hmm. and uh, she made that speech about how um, it's time for like other marginalized people, like like people of color or like LGBTQ folks to like fight for women because nobody's been fighting for women. So people like really called Patricia Arquette out on her white feminism when she did that. Um, but like even following that year, now we have another year where this is happening. So yes, like, you know, last time we talked about the Os- hashtag Oscar so white. Um, we also talked about how it, it's just, it's kind of like this manifestation of um, this very systemic like misogyny and mis- systemic uh, racism that keeps women and people of color outside of like um, uh, big, big executive roles or even like behind the camera and in front of the camera. So there's that piece. And then there's the piece where all of these clueless slash racist slash ignorant white actors have come out to make comments about the controversy you just kind of want everybody to not talk because you're afraid that one of your faves is going to like climb into the problematic faves side. <laughs> so, so Amy, you've been collecting a list, right? Of, yes. Of terrible responses to yes. the Oscars So White um, discussion by white actors. So let's see. Sorry, I'm like, looking for that. Gotta turn the page. <laughs> oh, wait, how long is this list? Is it two pages? <laughs> I'm not kidding. Uh, all right. Okay, so let's start off with Helen Mirren, uh, who just um, came out with saying that, quote, I think it's unfair to attack the Academy. It just so happened this year it went that way. So Helen Mirren, like, followed this quote by saying that, yes, of course, we have to look at bigger systemic issues with Hollywood, and it's, you know, it's unfair to just sort of focus on Oscars, but I would say that this is untrue, and um, and also Helen Mirren's, like, 
there's a cluelessness here because she says that it just so happened to go this way this year, but it didn't just so happen to go this way this year. It went this way last year, and it's been this way for like decades since the Academy was founded. So this one is, uh, I would say, is one of the worst. Uh, it's from Charlotte Rampling, who is nominated this year for her role in 45 Years. Uh, and the quote is, when asked about the controversy and asked about um, boycott by black actors to the Oscars, Charlotte Ramp- Rampling said, It is racist against whites. One can never really know, but sometimes maybe black actors did not deserve to make the final list. My heart rate literally <laughs> was like racing as I was reading that. Um, so, so there's a couple problems with that. Where do you want to start? <laughs> well, um, first I just want to start with saying fuck Charlotte Rambling because this is just this is like completely racist. So, like, stop it with this nonsense. I'm not playing with that. And then to say that, like, well, maybe sometimes black actors did not deserve to make the final list. Well, no, that's not how it works. Like, like there's systemic, like, racism that keeps people away from getting to be able to even get close to making this list. So this notion that, like, oh, as, a, as white actors, somehow you're just better than other, like, like actors of color just because you're so much more talented. It's a very white supremacist notion that, like, if you were good enough, you would be here. That's fucking untrue. Like, um, we're, we are not fucking playing this game. And, like, I am not here for Charlotte Rambling. And you know what? I didn't even know who she was before this shit happened. <laughs> and now I'm, like, regretful that I do know who she was. And then I was talking to um, uh, somebody else who works at Stiff, Ju- uh, who works at Bitch, uh, Julie, our executive director. And she said that, like, Charlotte Rambling was on Dexter. And that I remembered who she was. Um, she played um, Dexter's uh, therapist. And I remember very clearly watching this and being like, wow, that's amazing. They're having like an older woman play an older woman who looks like an older woman. Like, this is so great. You know, this is awesome. And now I'm like regretful that I remember that, that I was like rooting for her for that millisecond. You hear this reverse racism argument all the time, usually in discussions around affirmative action, you know, that um, trying to combat discrimination in colleges um, is racist against white people who deserve those spots and should get in. And that's like a real cultural notion in our society about that like white people deserve these things and uh, pushing back against discrimination is taking something away from white people and I think that's what Charlotte Rampling is expressing in this idea is like is like don't take away my Oscar nomination um, because I'm white I think that's that's the fear or the I think that's that's the fear that I that I hear in that quote and also the like lack of regard for people um, who have been discriminated against as well as a lack of awareness about patterns of discrimination that lead to people being blocked out of the film industry, TV industry, and the Oscars specifically. So Charlotte Rampling might be a, is, is a fine actor, but what, what she's ignoring in that statement is that there are systems of privilege built into place that allow her to get awards and allow her to get roles that aren't available to people who aren't white. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My next. Okay. Quote. We're, we're two people into this list. And it's two pages long, so maybe we should just. <laughs> well, stop talking. This is interesting because then I can like kind of categorize these two quotes or, or these three quotes because they're in a way they have a similar feeling. Uh, Meryl Streep recently said uh, because she is a president of a jury panel at the Berlin International Film Festival, and um, somebody asked her there not so much about this controversy um, in the U.S. but about um, for the Berlin Film Festival. There are some films that are from Africa or in the Middle East, and somebody asked her like. Um, 
can your all-white jury, because she's the president of the story, and the story is all-white, uh, can your all-white jury really have like the context or reference to, un- to like, really understand and get these films that are made you know, from Africa or from the Middle East? And uh, Meryl Streep went on to say, we're all Africans. <laughs> like, her jam was that she was trying to say, you know, in the end, like, um, the, sa- the same feelings of, like, humanity course through all of us, regardless of our culture. Kumbaya. Right. But when you say a quote like that, um, it really diminishes, like, what it means to be an African. Yeah, it sounds like, like, there's this argument that a lot of people make that they're like, why do we have to keep talking about racism? Can't we all just get along? Like, we're one human race. And... <laughs> That's an argument people yeah, make, like people make all true. the time. It's true. It's very true. Yeah. And this is this is a this is a succinct summation of the argument of like, right. you know what? We're all Africans. Yeah. Why can't we just all get? We're all humans. It doesn't like. Of course, our all white jury can judge these films. Mm-hmm. Because at heart, we're all one human race. Right. And then, like, she went on to point out that, like, well, actually, as a woman and being the president of this jury, and also there are a lot of women on this jury, so, like, that's a big breakthrough. But that's actually, that's a very white feminist thing to say. It's like, it's a big breakthrough for whom? Um, so, Meryl Streep, stop making me dislike you because I love The Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> I really love that movie. And, <laughs> and I really want to continue to watch it like for no reason. So please stop talking. Um, uh, another, another quote is from Julie Delpy, um, who's a French actor who's been, I think she's most well known in the States for like Before Sunset and Before Sunrise, that series with Richard Linklater. Um, she was at Sundance Film Festival promoting another film, super white film called Wiener Dog. Um, <laughs> and, and she was asked about this controversy and she said, quote, I sometimes wish I was African American. At least people don't bash them afterward when they say something. And the context of this is that um, she was saying, you know, like as a woman, I have called out how misogynistic the industry is, but like people uh, shut me down and didn't want to talk about it. And so she's saying, you know what, if I was black, like I wouldn't have received that same backlash. So again, this ignores the systemic racism that keeps black folks voices and their narratives and and, and, like job opportunities away from them. Um, You got one more for this series? Oh, I, yes. Another one is from Michael Caine, um, you know, our favorite grandpa actor, uh, <laughs> uh, who said, who, who, by the way, um, has been nominated six times and won twice. Okay. This is like a good frame of reference to understand this. Um, he was responding to this controversy and he was kind of like being paternalistic and saying to black actors, quote, be patient. Of course it will come. It took me years to get an Oscar. So it's this notion of like, if you just wait for your time, it'll happen for you. But that's not how like systemic oppression works. Systemic oppression works by like keeping you away from this for as long as they possibly can. And until we address it, um, nothing will change. You just can't sit and watch patiently without um, causing a ruckus and calling people out. So that's a really, that's another. Yeah. I mean, that, that idea uh, is predicated on the idea that like, that that change will just happen naturally. And I think one thing that's worth pointing out in the context of that quote is that I just looked up the number over the 87 years of the Academy Awards, 14 men and women of color have won awards for best actor, best actress, best supporting actor, best supporting actress. So it's been 87 years and change has not come. Only 14 people have gotten awards who are people of color in those categories. Uh, so this is not a situation where we can just like be patient and, let let time take its course. Right, and it's really like 
paternalistic and clueless to say something like that to black actors who face like serious barriers to even getting a role mm-hmm. or even having roles created where they that they can play them. Mm-hmm. Just tell them just wait for it. That's not how this. That's not how any of this works. Um, so sorry, Michael Caine, you're a jerk. Um, the next one is from Joel Cohen of the Cohen Brothers, and again context. Um, these two guys have been nominated for. 13 Academy Awards. Wow. And they've both won four times. So for them to say what, for Joel Cohen to say this, it's kind of ridiculous. Um, so he said, quote, the Oscars are not that important. Um, so it's this notion that like, who cares? Well, of course you can say who cares because you've been nominated more than a fucking dozen times mm-hmm. and you've won four with your brother. It was for a, an interview with the Daily Beast with this writer named Jenny Yamoto. And Jenny Yamoto actually asked him, like, uh, is it important or not important to consciously factor in concerns like diversity while you're making the film? And uh, Ethan Cohen answered, not in the least. Uh, he said, it's important to tell the story you're telling the right way, which might involve black people or people of whatever heritage or ethnicity, or it might not. Hmm. And then Joel even went on to say that the question that was being asked is idiotic. Whoa. Yes, because he's saying that this question doesn't take into account how stories are told. You know, like you just can't like be plugging in, um, you know, having like blank spaces where it's like, okay, here's, here's a black actor or like, here's a woman actor or whatever. That's not how it works. But like their response doesn't look at like who gets to tell the stories, not how these stories are getting told, but who gets to tell them. And it's, it's really like lacking in self-awareness to just be like, it's not that important to win an Oscar. Like it's actually about how you tell the story and, and not examining like how much like garbage dump truck loads of privilege these two men have in saying th- these comments. I, I just think what, what they're overlooking here is that um, the majority of stories that do get told are the are ones that are about white people and that really for actors uh, to even have the shot at being on screen or getting an award is, is rare unless they're white dudes. Right, because it's also about funding, like, like um, what will big studios fund? What will they put money into? Um, and they think that, like, these are the stories that people want to see, which is untrue. Like you can just tell from the success of um, a season sorry show, mm-hmm. right? Like he put out a show about people of color and people loved it. Mm-hmm. So obviously there's like this want and need for this, but the pe- the folks in power um, feel as if like there's no market for it, um, which actually brings me to another quote. But before I get there, uh, I want to talk about a Clint East- Eastwood quote. So this one's kind of like <laughs> a little funny because it was from TMZ. It looked like he was like waiting on the sidewalk for his valet to show up for, with his car. So they asked him about this controversy, and uh, Clint Eastwood said, "Quote: All I know is there's some, all I know is there's thousands of people in the Academy, and the majority of them haven't won Oscars. A lot of people are crying, I guess." So this is from a four-time Oscar nominee, <laughs> uh, and it's very dismissive. It's another thing where it's like, "Well, you didn't win any, so now you're being a crybaby," or "You didn't get nominated, so now you're being a crybaby." Um, but back to the thing about funding, um, and, and how funding correlates to like what stories get told. Bill Maher. <laughs> uh, my least favorite person. We, we have a gigantic least favorite person okay, list. Well, he's, he's on there. <laughs> yeah. Um, he was talking about this controversy and, uh, and he made a remark saying, quote, Asians really are racist. So the context of this is that he's saying that, um, the reason why Hollywood is so white is because of the foreign market and how Hollywood needs to make films that appeal to a foreign market. And uh, 
apparently the foreign market loves white people. Um, this statement is, was like, is, is so clueless. It completely ignores like the systemic his, like the history of the academy when it was founded, like, uh, almost a hundred years ago, um, and how it was f- it's, how it was founded as a white supremacist organization because you know of just just by the nature of what it is and like who it nominates and who it highlights, right? And then it also um, it's just simply untrue because the if if the foreign market like really drives um, like h- what kind of films get made, um, a film like the film that Charlotte Rampling is nominated for forty five years. Uh, wouldn't get made. It's a film about uh, an uh, old, an elderly couple celebrating the 45th anniversary. You know, it's like a very quiet film, a film like Brooklyn, where um, the w- woman who stars in that film is nominated for Best Actor. That film w- wouldn't get made. It was just reliant, solely reliant on foreign markets. Well, I think I think what this quote plays into is that um, the, the same idea we were talking about before of, of people of people who are involved in the film industry, the TV industry, saying. Well, the market's just not there. Like, we make movies that we want to have be popular. So these are the actors who are popular. Yeah, they're all white. But we're going to make, we're going to give the people what they want. And really ignoring the idea that uh, there's a lot of people who want to see more diversity in films and want to see representation of people who look like them in films. And so that kind of self-perpetuating idea of like, well, we do what's popular and what's popular is white people uh, is both self-defeating, I think, from an economic standpoint and just untrue from from a social standpoint. <laughs> well, not according to these folks. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the Justice for Flint live stream alternative to the Oscars. April Rain's Oscars So White hashtag criticism is getting a reboot this year. All 20 acting nominees are again white. This year's awards are even more egregious than last year's, though. The movie Straight Outta Compton received a lot of industry support at SAG-AFTRA, as well as a Best Picture nomination from the Producers Guild, but its only Oscar nod went to the white screenwriters for Best Original Screenplay. Creed, which has been praised basically everywhere, also only received one nomination, and that for Sylvester Stallone for Best Supporting Actor. In response, the Oscar backlash has gone well beyond Twitter. While they aren't exactly calling it a boycott, Spike Lee, Jada Pinkett Smith, and Will Smith aren't attending amidst the demand to diversify nominees and the industry in general. In a country where people's exposure to those outside their communities and understanding of what's normal and acceptable often comes from the entertainment industry, it's important to support the efforts to fund and produce films that better represent our population and experiences as a whole. So this year, instead of watching the Oscars, tune into the hashtag Justice for Flint fundraiser taking place in Flint, Michigan, and live streamed at Revolt.tv. Creed director and co-writer Ryan Coogler, Ava DuVernay, director of Selma, singer Janelle Monet. 
Grey's Anatomy star Jesse Williams and others are putting on this guaranteed-to-be-entertaining free event presented by Cooler's organization, Blackout for Human Rights. You can get the full lineup at the Blackout for Human Rights Tumblr, then tune in at 5 p.m. Eastern Sunday night. During the broadcast, text JUSTICE to 83224 to donate to the victims of the ongoing Flint water crisis and follow the Justice for Flint hashtag. Exclusive event announcement rights were given to BuzzFeed, So their article titled, The Director of Creed is Throwing a Star-Studded Free Event for Flint on Oscars Night, has all the correct info. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If equity and entertainment and helping the Flint water crisis victims matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the hashtag Justice for Flint event via social media so that others in your network can watch and donate too. The Academy Awards will come and go, and the Oscars so white hashtag with them. But if there's anything we learn from the protest, it's that if you want to address diversity at awards shows, you have to start further upstream. A new report reminds us what that looks like. The comprehensive Annenberg Report on Diversity from the University of Southern California looked at a year of major studio films and scripted TV and digital series. A third of speaking characters were female, only 28% from minority groups. That's 10% less than in the U.S. population. Oh, and once those characters are over 40, they're 74% male. Directors overall were 87% white. On broadcast TV, that figure was 90%. And just 15% of directors, 29% of writers, and 23% of series creators are female. In film... 3.4% of films were directed by women, and only two directors out of 109 were black women. Indeed, there's nothing new here, but that doesn't mean there's nothing to see. It just depends whether or not it matters to you. Report author Stacey Smith suggests a new way of looking at it. We don't have a diversity problem, Smith says. We have an inclusion crisis. We just heard clips featuring Upworthy, who broke down mansplaining for us, Propaganda, who dove into the racial politics of Disney movies, Decode DC and their story about women demanding a seat at the table in the Obama administration, Democracy Now! and their summation of the lack of diversity in the Oscars, On the Media, who spoke with the minds behind Spread Magazine, Backtalk, who ran down the depressingly long list of bad responses to the Oscar So White hashtag. Our activism for today is in support of the 
Justice for Flint fundraiser, and Counterspend finished off putting a fine point on the upstream crisis of inclusion that is only made so obvious when the results of that system are put on display at an all-white Oscars. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Dave from Olympia. I stumbled across a perspective on the internet that I've never seen before. I thought I'd share it, maybe toss it into voicemail, see what other people like, get some conversation. And again, it's, uh, it, it's around the idea of better definitions and nuance. And the problem, if you will, with a lot of discussion uh, around class is a poor understanding of what we're talking about. We talk about, you know, the upper class, the wealthy class, the middle class, and it's not always 100% clear what we mean. We mean the 1%, the 0.01%, and then there's the problem that everyone in America thinks they're middle class. People that are clearly not middle class, uh, people that um, are, you know, either just they're poor, they're not middle class, or people that are quite wealthy still consider themselves middle class. It's a nebulous term. So I stumbled across a blog post, and it's on this place called The Arch Druid Report. If anybody chose to Google that. But his, he breaks it down slightly differently. Not necessarily, you know, class are you and how much money do you get, but where do you get your money? What is your main source of income? Is it from investments and you're, you know, living off the income from those investments? Do you earn a salary? Do you have a job where uh, you're guaranteed a certain, you know, monthly income and, you know, you work maybe long hours for whatever your, your negotiated deal is, you work for a salary. Does your income come from wages, an hourly wage where you work a certain number of hours and you get compensated for those hours of work? And, you know, this could be everyone from part-time work to people who work a lot of overtime and are, you know, compensated at time and a half for their overtime. But it's a fundamentally different deal, if you will, with their employer than somebody who works for a salary. Or do most of your income come from welfare, from uh, support from the government? Um, and he breaks it down into those four classes. And as a caveat, he points out that the entrepreneurial class business owners whose income comes from innovation and the, you know, gumption and hard work they can bring to a small business, and writers and artists who get their income as a result of their creative work both exist, but they're vanishingly small, around 1% of the total economy, which is an interesting side note. I thought thought the entrepreneurial class would be, you know, closer to 5%, but... Looking at those four classes and looking at the last 20 years, the investment class is doing fine. With the stock market crash, they've had some you know rough times, but they've largely recovered. They're somewhat nimble. They're doing fine. The welfare class, you know, it sucks. It's it's grinding poverty. It's wondering where your next paycheck, you know, your next meal is coming from. Making hard decisions about you know, do I take the kids to the doctor? Or do I pay? You know, make sure we have money for food at the end of the month. And it sucked, but it's always sucked, and it's not necessarily gotten significantly worse since the welfare reforms under Bill Clinton. So the the crash hurt, but it didn't necessarily shatter the lifestyle. The salary class has suffered, but by and large, they're doing okay. 
the you know, professional jobs, employment, there's, there's still need for that. The group that has suffered by and large in America in the last decade, and not just since the uh, 08 financial crash, has been the wage earning class, the offshoring of jobs, the consolidation of jobs, the breakup of unions, lower paid jobs becoming more prevalent compared to high paid jobs. They have suffered tremendously. And when you talk about the middle class suffering, it's like that's kind of true, but it's that subsection of both the middle class and the lower class who works at wage earning jobs are the groups that are really, really suffering economically. When you look at it this way, you can see a finer grained image of what's really going on and see some interesting trends. So one trend that this uh, blog post points out is that a lot of the pain that has been visited upon the wage class has benefited, and it's an uncomfortable thing to kind of think about and say, but it's benefited the salary class as a member of the salary class. So the offshoring of jobs to China and the super low wages has hollowed out the manufacturing infrastructure of America. A lot of people that work for wages don't have jobs anymore. Ooh, but now iPhones are super cheap. So the toys that the salary class, you know, sees as a kind of benefit of their lifestyle are now super cheap as a direct result of, not a direct result, but it's definitely tied to the fact that wage earners have poorer jobs. And the solutions, things like retraining these wage earners, they need to go back to school, they need to go get retrained. If they get job training or a college, go back to college and get a degree, and there's not a job that fits that skill set, they don't have a job when they get out of school, um, that feels like a betrayal. But it's worse so because the individuals who work at educational institutions, professors, tend to be in that salary class. The retraining boom has been relatively good for them. The folks that work at financial institutions that have financed these people going into debt to get these degrees, which aren't helping them, largely part of the salary class. And so there's there's a tension within the middle class between where you get your income. Do you earn a salary? Do you earn a wage? And the extrapolation is that part of this tension is what Donald Trump is tying into this sense of betrayal and hurt, not by the uber, uber, uber rich, but by the salary class that the wage earning class feels. Uh, and not necessarily unjustifiably so. So I found that unique because I'd never heard that analysis before. Somewhat troubling because I'm part of that salary class and, you know, I have family members who work at colleges. Uh, so <laughs> it, it landed a little close to home, but that doesn't mean it's not true. But I just wondered uh, if you wanted to play the voicemail and, and had any thoughts or uh, wanted to throw it out for other commenters if there were any thoughts out there. I would love to hear uh, reactions to that. As always, stay awesome.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So for today, I think I'm just going to second Dave's motion there for all of you to respond to the message he just left. You know, my first instinct is that that framing of the different quadrants of income earners is an interesting and useful way to look at things sometimes and probably not all of the time. But I would love to hear what other people have to say about it in response. Primarily today, I wanted to bring to you another excellent comment that I got by email. Jordan from Salt Lake City wrote in. He's responding to a series of misunderstandings that were happening. First, Wade's comments were taken like sort of badly out of context. And then another caller had some responses that really didn't seem to fit his comments. And my take on all of that was we're really going to have a much more productive conversation here on this show and in life and everywhere if we really just respond to what people are actually saying to the best of our ability to interpret what they're saying with the caveat that, yes, you can be aware of liars and people with ulterior motives and so forth. But in general, in polite conversation, take people at their word and see where it goes. So Jordan's response to that is this. With the recent misunderstandings on the show and your comments about addressing what it is that people actually say, I wanted to expand upon that point. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow once wrote, quote, If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility, unquote. I find it helpful when I'm confronted with a viewpoint that I find visceral objection to, to take a moment to stop and understand that people often believe that they have a very good reason for thinking the way they do. Neurologists have actually found that our brains initially respond to disagreement by making an emotional conclusion, and unless that emotion is examined, our next step is typically to rationalize and justify that initial conclusion. In the interest of maintaining constructive dialogue on the show, I would challenge listeners to examine their initial reactions critically. We are unlikely to persuade anyone else to our point of view if we refuse to leave our own paradigm and come to people where they are and from their perspective. So that was Jordan from Salt Lake City. Excellent. Love the comments. Totally agree. If you'd like to respond to that or anything else said on today's show, I highly encourage it. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can see power. Stories and wonder why we're missing. We can't see past our sad stories and forget how.
Cidade 